Let the grind begin. Training camp begins this week, and welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. Yes! Paul, Paul, relax. Yes! See, this. Uh, yes! I, I haven't seen you in two weeks, and you have to come with that. 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat. Thank you for being with us. We'll take your calls and your tweets later on in the show. But we're going to lead off with a good way to start off the unofficial beginning of the 2019 season by doing a little preview of not only the Giants, but going around the league as well. And for that... We're joined, we're joined by one of the better analytical minds in pro football, and that is Warren Sharp, and he has his new book, The 2019 Season Preview, by Warren Sharp. Warren, thanks so much for being part of the show. Second straight year you've joined us. Um, before we get started, why don't you tell the folks about your book and where they can find it? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, you can find my book up at a PDF version at sharpfootballanalysis.com. And they also sell the printed version uh, at Amazon.com, and it's just called the Warren Sharps 2019 Football Preview. Awesome, Warren. By the way, um, our analytics guy upstairs, John Berger, wanted me to pass on his regards to you and said he thought you did a real nice job talking at the Sloan Conference. Did you enjoy doing that? I did, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Uh, my first opportunity up there, got to meet a lot of new people and share some of the insights and, and research and talk about the direction that we're headed with analytics uh, into the future of studying the NFL. Well, why don't we start broadly there? Um, what are some of the things that you think NFL teams have done a good job catching on to? And what are you moving on to? What's, what's your next step here? That Things that you're trying to figure out that NFL teams can use to maximize their talent? Well, I think they're doing a good job of passing the ball more because it is a more efficient play call. And, uh, you know, they've started to do that over the last couple of years, even, even a little bit more on first down, which the floor has risen on those passes dramatically. And by that, I mean uh, the, the worst thing that could happen on those passes, of course, apart from a turnover, uh, would be a negative play or incompletion. And the completion rate on those first down passes has increased dramatically over the last several years, uh, making it a more efficient play for these teams to call. And we've definitely seen more teams take advantage of that. Um, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, more teams should be passing even more often than they currently are. Uh, more teams should be throwing the football to their running backs on early downs as opposed to waiting to third down uh, to throw the football to running backs. While more teams are passing the ball more often, uh, they're, using, they're doing it uncreatively. Uh, they're primarily just trotting out 11 personnel, which is three wide receivers. So the rate of passes from 11 personnel has increased. But the rate of success and yards per attempt when you pass the ball out of 12 or 21 personnel, uh, keeping a little bit more disguise towards the run, uh, but then throwing from those uh, personnel groupings has a higher upside. So more teams need to try to be creative with their personnel groupings when they're passing the football. So those are a few of the like the basic things. Um, there's some more detailed things that we could obviously get into if we wanted to, but uh, that's high level, I think. <laughs> and and the stuff is very complicated. I think one of the things that I enjoyed about when I scanned through your, your stuff, uh, Warren, was that your graphs and your charts, they're color-coded. Uh, they're very nice to look at and a lot easier to understand than somebody otherwise might think because these are very detailed numbers and and they're very detailed uh, categories and it could be it could be tough to decipher that stuff if it's just in black and white but you do a very nice job with your layout uh, John's holding it up to the uh, TV camera right now and it really I, I commend you on that because the presentation in my mind is almost more significant than even the info you got to be able to, to get it out there and, and have people understand it and enjoy it. Otherwise, uh, you know, you're kind of you're kind of wasting a lot of energy. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that, actually, because uh, that's a big focus of mine um, in studying the way that I wanted to build one of my uh, free to use analytics websites, which is SharpFootballStats.com. Um, I spent a lot of time studying how people best retain and process information, and what I uncovered was that. Uh, nowadays, especially, everybody does it in more of a visualized manner, um, as opposed to you know reading black and white texting columns. People like are able to retain and process color a lot easier now than they used to be, and so uh, that's why I made you know the, that website and throughout the course of this book 
everything is uh, color coded and color coordinated to let you easily see best and worst. Um, and of course, that 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 hurts the bottom line um, from a financial perspective because that's why I only make twenty one cents a copy from the book <laughs> on is because it's in full color. I could make fifteen dollars a copy if it was in black and white, but um, I wanted to make it so that people really. Uh, enjoy reading it and get the most out of it. And I think the only way to do that was to incorporate that full-color palette. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I got a, a little sidetracked because I did want to compliment you on your layout. I, I really wanted to get that up top because I think people need to understand that it is very simple to look at and, and easy to read. But my question kind of builds up what John was saying. I'd like to know, do you think there is a mystery or surprise trend that will be unveiled this year that we haven't seen in recent years. Uh, I have a suspicion that when the Chargers went to the basically all sub package last year with the seven DBs and the four down linemen, I truly believe you're going to see more teams start using that and start mixing it in to their schemes. In fact, I'm going to go as far to say that I wouldn't be surprised on occasion if the New York Giants do it right here in East Rutherford. It is it is something that I'm very, very intrigued by. Yeah, and, and I think in that case, if teams do decide to use that a little bit more often, then it makes it even more important for offenses to pass the ball out of 12 and 21 personnel sets because, um, you know, if you throw out a bunch of DBs out there, um, you know, the defenses obviously are going to be uh, they're planning to be able to defend your run game with that same grouping, but they don't have as many personnel out there to be able to deal with a tight end heavy passing attack. Um, and so that, that is the potential upside is the, is the big bodies that you have uh, from that perspective. But one of the things I'm intrigued uh, into looking into is, you know, obviously third down conversion. I'm, I'm huge on early down success, okay? Um, staying out of third downs is massively important towards NFL success. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's probably the most important metric out there apart from uh, avoiding turnovers. Well, that means you and, love the Canadian game, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but but from, from the NFL perspective, if you are stuck in a third and long situation, the conversion rate on those third and longs is very low. I mean, obviously, in a team in your own division, the Philadelphia Eagles were really good at that in 2017, and that's what helped propel them to the Super Bowl. But that's something that's not very repeatable. Um, and so the key is, will teams decide to go short on third and long so that they can ultimately be able to find a fourth down conversion? We know that more teams are studying fourth down conversion numbers and more teams need to attempt more fourth down conversions. But a way to get to those situations could be uh, a two-step process on these third and long situations. Um, and I'm intrigued to see if more teams don't decide to do that. Yeah, I want to relate a couple of these things back to the Giants specifically before we continue on kind of the broader analytic conversation, Warm, because I think you touched on a couple things um, that relate back to the Giants. One, I think we saw the Giants use more 12 than most teams last year, especially at the end of the year, and they ran at and they passed at a lot of those heavy formations. So I think that's a check mark um, in their area. Two spots where I know you were somewhat critical of them in your book, and I'd like you to talk about it a little bit, is how they approach fourth downs, one. And then two, I want to get your take on how you think they can maximize Saquon Barkley's ability. Because in the first half of the year last year, I think he had 50 catches in the first eight games, but a lot of those were third and 19 dump-offs that really don't get you anything in the long run, right? So how do they best utilize Barkley? And then what's your take in terms of how they approach fourth downs? Yeah, so I was really disappointed um, with their aggressiveness on fourth down. We know that more teams are trending in that direction, uh, but the Giants attempted just one fourth down when tied or leading. Now, why you, know, you don't want to only reserve going for it on fourth down when, when you're in desperation situation and trailing. But you want to be able to go for it on fourth down when it's advantageous to do so. And some of those times are going to be when the game's tied or even with a small lead. Uh, they kicked or punted 48 times and only went for it once. 
Now, that was a touchdown pass against the Bears. You're not always going to get touchdown passes against the Bears on fourth down. <laughs> uh, you need to be a little bit more aggressive on, on those fourth down attempts. Um, so, and if you remove two-minute drills and fourth-quarter deficits, they attempted just eight fourth downs all year long. I mean, we're talking like th- there was no team worse than them in terms of their decision to go for it on fourth down. So, Pat Shermer and the crew need to study more analytics to get a better understanding of optimal situations to go for it on fourth down. And that would really help the Giants' feeling in 2019 if they were more intelligent with their decision-making process on fourth downs. Your second part of your question with regard to Saquon Barkley, you're absolutely correct. Um, Barkley was drawing a lot of third and long targets. The worst time to target a running back is on third and long if you want to try to convert a first down. I mean, if you just want to complete a pass and gain a few yards, then fine. That's the easiest pass to do. But if you're in a third and medium to long situation, the least likely position that's going to convert that first down, I mean, the metrics show this to us, so it's not just guessing, it's the fact, is to throw the football to a running back, even if it is one as creative as and, and, and talented Saquon Barkley. So they need to be targeting their wide receivers and their uh, tight ends on third and long situations. And there's the other opportunity in what I just stated up front. The Giants would be a perfect test case for this. In third and long situations, you're not going to convert very many first downs throwing it short of the sticks, but you're going to have a pretty high completion rate on some of those passes and then set yourself up and actually go for it on fourth and short. So try that strategy a little bit. Uh, But there definitely was not that strategy being implemented last year and it's something they could definitely try to incorporate this year. Let me focus a little bit on the NFC East and the Giants' road to trying to succeed in the division this year. Warren, based on your analytics study, is there one area where you believe the Giants have the opportunity to maximize their advantage against the teams in the division? And one area where you feel they would be in the most trouble as they try to go up against teams inside their division? Um, well, look, we know that um, several teams in your division have very good pass rushes, right? So um, one of the things that the Giants are going to obviously need to pay close attention to, they have a better offensive line than they have in the past. Mm-hmm. They need to be able to get that ball out quickly from Eli with timing and precision. Um, so that's, that's one of the biggest things that they need to, um, to work on and look to improve upon. You know, getting, getting Sterling Shepard going and, and, and having access to, like, some decent production in the slot is going to be important, especially without Odell Beckham commanding those uh, double teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's going to be something that they could struggle against teams um, in their division. One of the things that um, I think they, they benefit from is simply the fact that Saquon Barkley is so dynamic, and there really isn't, even if you look at Ezekiel Elliott, there really isn't another back in the division who has as much explosion um, and kind of creativity and running style mm-hmm. as does Saquon Barkley. So. But the problem is so many de- these defenses capitalize and study so much about how we're going to stop Saquon Barkley. I mean, imagine this year without Odell, how much more they're going to focus on just stopping Saquon Barkley. That for the Giants, although that's an edge for them, they have to realize that they can't get too run-focused and run-centric and that they have to, at times, set up the run by using the pass a little bit more and make those defenses open up so that Saquon will have the highest upside he possibly could get. Warren, one thing I love what you do is that you look at strength of schedule and you base opponent and you base your analysis of a team's performance based on the teams that they play. Obviously, a team that plays a bunch of you know twenty fifth ranked pass defense should have better passing numbers than a team that plays a bunch of fifth ranked pass defense. It's, it's just logical, and I don't think enough people do that. You do a good job of it. When you took a, take a look at the Giants last year in their schedule 
And now you look ahead to what they have coming in 2019. Where do you think there might be some aberrations? Where do things really shift in terms of strength of schedule? And how maybe do you think in some ways that might give people a realistic or unrealistic look at what to expect from the Giants in different categories heading into 2019? You're right. Uh, Strength of schedule is vital. And I spend a lot of time studying strength of schedule because Um, Not as many people study it, and the way that most people study strength of schedule is just by looking at, like, prior year opponent win rates. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're not going to find anything predictive out of that. Uh, I've studied it, and there's nothing there. It's pointless to even discuss that perspective. Um, Fortunately for the Giants, you know, one of the things that I look at from just an overall strength of schedule is I like to look at the projected wins set by the bookmakers out in Las Vegas. And they are projecting right now that the Giants are going to actually face the sixth easiest schedule of opposing teams this upcoming year. So the overall number of average wins that are being forecast for the teams this year, Giants get to face the sixth easiest schedule. So that's obviously a big benefit. In terms of total efficiency, if you want to look at you know passing and rushing, et cetera, mm-hmm. the, the efficiency numbers, Giants actually face the easiest schedule of any team in the NFL this upcoming year. Now, to put a little bit of uh, you know cold water on that, they played the sixth easiest schedule last season, and they still clearly struggled. Um, so they do face the easiest schedule. Uh, things are going to be the most easy on their defense. Their defense plays the easiest schedule of passing offenses and the easiest schedule of rushing offenses mm-hmm. this upcoming year. So that's going to be a big benefit. In addition, offensively, the run game, you know, Saquon, it's, it's, it's easy to criticize, and I do criticize the amount of early down runs the Giants were calling and things of that nature, but we need to also take into consideration um, that Saquon Barkley played the second toughest schedule of opposing run defenses his rookie year. So that's tough on, going to be tough on any running back. This year they're going to play slightly below average schedule of opposing run defenses. So a big drop um, in terms of how easier his team is going, his rushing uh, offense is going to be able to face. And, uh, but then conversely, from a passing perspective, Eli Manning last year faced the 23rd um, toughest schedule of opposing pass offenses. Now they're going to face the 11th toughest. So uh, these numbers are forecasted. Obviously, they're not always going to be 100% accurate when you actually play the full season out. We sit back here uh, you know, in the wild card round and look back at who they really played. Uh, but the point is, general takeaway is easier schedule of run defenses, tougher schedule of pass defenses, and your defense should be in a very good position to produce given the fact that you're going to be playing an easy schedule of opposing offenses. Warren, I, I want to ask you this, this, and I guess maybe it's an obvious question, but I, I don't know how many people think about it or, or, or ask you about it. All this work that you do, and the numbers are deep, and there, there's obviously a ton of them there, but when you look at a team like the Giants, who now are going to have a lot of young, inexperienced guys, specifically a bunch of rookies in the back seven, who are going to be playing in, on this year's team, how do you, if at all, compute them into your projections? Because, you know, guys, uh, let's, let's not kid ourselves, Love, Baker, uh, these guys are going to be a big part of the secondary. Um, and you know, nobody knows, you know, uh, nobody knows what Dexter Lawrence is going to do. The, the guy was a stud at Clemson. We expect he's going to have heavy rotational snaps. If that's the case, he certainly is going to be uh, expected to be a very high-level run stopper. But we don't know that. So when you have a team like the Giants who will have a significant amount of unproven kids on on that team and in their heavy rotation, how do you deal with that? Or do you just say, look, this is the data I have. This is all I can work off of. And those kids, those are the wild cards. And there's really no predictive computation that I can even begin to throw out there to quantify what they might do for this team. Yeah, I think it's a blend of those two um, with a little bit of emphasis on the latter. Um, you know, you have to give your 
uh, best projections. But the issue that occurs, um, you guys probably know this from you know studying the Giants so closely, any team around the league, same situation. Uh, let's pretend you've got your starting 11, right? And, and let's even look at the defensive side of the ball. And you lose, you know, your, your right defensive end. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a slight drop-off, but you're going to still be able to produce, you know, well defensively. But, but then let's say you lose, you know, an outside linebacker and you lose another guy along the defensive line. Um, you know, those cluster, we call them cluster injuries, when they happen at a similar position or close proximity, like your right, whole right side of your offensive line is out and you got a couple of backups out there, that then becomes a little bit more problematic and mm-hmm. we start to really focus on that more often. So when you're talking about your defense, yes, if you were incorporating, you know, one rookie in there, okay, two rookies, but when you introduce a lot of youth, and inexperienced at the same time, that's when really we have to start to call into question, you know, what is the overall picture going to look like? Um, And it does make it a little bit more convoluted and difficult to project. Um, I think it just further emphasizes coaching as being vital. um, Sure. Get these guys properly prepared uh, because preparation and study of film and, you know, learning from some of the vets that you do have, is going to be vital in the development and the preparation on a weekly basis for your upcoming opponent. So um, th- those are all things that are going to be important. But kind of as you mentioned at the end there, it is it's difficult, and you try not, at least I try not, to go really out on the line too far and, and make pr- strong projections one way or another um, when you're dealing with situations like that where there's a lot of turnover and, and experience. Um, you just kind of wait and see how things will, will play out, but it's difficult to forecast, absolutely. Well, I'm looking at the defensive side of the ball, I feel like the analytics on that side probably lag behind on offense a little bit, and I understand they're going against each other, so one could be used for the other. But are you seeing anything in terms of trends around the league in terms of you know defensive play call type, defensive personnel they put out there, where teams might have more success, either not blitzing, blitzing, any trends out there on a league-wide basis, or is that really specific to the individual teams because of their scheme and, and unique personnel from team to team? It, it, it is difficult. Um, you know, we are noticing that um, you know, coverage has dictated a little bit more um, overall defensive success. But it is a challenge uh, because defenses do play different schemes and they adjust those schemes based on the offenses that they're playing. Um, so, you know, the way that, for example, the, the Chargers had a lot of success defending the Ravens, um, and then, you know, that same system was a huge failure against the Patriots. Uh, you know, they're going to be adjusting their schemes based upon the opposing, opponents that they're facing. Um, so, there's small takeaways that you can get. I, I think you alluded to one of them about, in general, using more DBs uh, uh, out on the field. Um, certainly, we're seeing, you know, more personnel suited to defend a, a eleven. You know, defenses are using more DBs uh, out there because offenses are using a little bit more eleven personnel. Uh, but in terms of like the blitz rates and those types of things, it does become. Um, more selective based upon each individual uh, team to try to get, you know, try to get any measurable takeaways. So from a league-wide perspective, it's, it's a little bit more of a challenge, um, but that's why studying individual defenses becomes very uh, useful, but you can't really do that a lot to start the season. Um, it's, it's after a few weeks that you start to see how the coordinators are using different players against different offensive tactics, and then you get a better sense as to what they're going to be able to do or or how you can forecast them into the future. Warren, final question for me, and it pertains to special teams. We often ignore special teams for some reason in a lot of conversations, and it's one-third of the game, so we never should do that. But, uh, you know, there is enough of a sample size now of the rules changes that we saw last year on special teams, uh, whether it be the blocking schemes that they they did away with last season, of course, the kickoffs and the touchback. The formations, all that stuff. All yeah. that mm-hmm. stuff. So there's enough of a sample size now to understand, okay, this is what it is. These are the things that have resulted from it. 
from your analysis, what has been the number one impact of the rules changes on special teams, specifically on the kickoffs? By far, by far, it is that coaches need to become more aggressive later in games because, and, and I mean by later, I mean start becoming more aggressive earlier in the games because it's very unlikely that you're going to recover onside kicks. The way that they've changed the kickoff rules has made it much more difficult to recover onside kicks. Um, we've also seen the only successful onside kicks, or most of the successful ones, have not been the kind that come down the sidelines, but other varieties of onside kicks. So special teams coaches need to be studying efficiency of the onside kicks and uh, build their own special teams when they're trying to recover them accordingly, um, not just doing things that have worked three, four, five years ago, but what is more likely to work in 2018 and 2019. Um, but you know, certainly you, you can't just play this, this, oh, well, we can get it to one score and then recover the onside kick, and, you know, oh, we didn't get the onside kick. Okay, well, that was our shot. I mean, you really have to be a lot more aggressive um, earlier in the game in order to try to hope that you can get back in a game that you might be trailing. All right, Warren, I got two more before you say goodbye. One is a pet peeve of mine, and I want to know how you handle it. I feel like a lot of times in in the analytics committee, which I'm, generally speaking, a believer in, I feel like sometimes it's easy to use league-wide data, but a lot of times, depending on the teams and a specific matchup from game to game you're talking about, the league-wide data might not be effective in suggesting a certain player strategy for those two specific individual teams in that specific matchup and situation. So when you go through this and, and you consider what teams should do and how they should handle certain situations, how much do you balance the league-wide data with the individual characteristics of certain teams where maybe one team is really good short yardage offense, one team is bad short yardage defense, you'll be more likely to go for it on fourth and short, you know, kind of things like that. Great question. Um, so, you know, naturally, I think coaches and coordinators need to do this. Um, this is how I advise teams that I that I advise during the season. Um, you have to understand the principles of what wins football games under today's rules construct. You have to understand that really well. You have to know what is the most efficient way to win games currently. But then you have to adjust and adapt for your own personnel. Mm. So a lot of what we do league-wide is we study trends, study efficiencies, uh, study metrics, try to forecast You know what teams should be doing in the future. Uh, maybe they're not doing it enough right now. Maybe it's something they haven't been doing at all that they need to start doing. Um, and so those are all vital towards being able to um, you know, optimize general efficiency around the league. But absolutely you must adjust and adapt to your own um, skill set and strengths as, and personnel as a team. Any good coach will do that. Um, let me give you one example. Frank Reich last year with the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, he loves using 12 personnel, as you guys know, from his time in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But Jack Doyle got injured really early in the season, and he ended up trotting out. He didn't put his backup tight end and just keep using 12 even though we know 12 is more efficient to pass the ball out of. I just told you the numbers earlier in this interview. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what he did is he trotted out a lot more 11 personnel as a result. He's adapting. He doesn't want to do this necessarily, but he's adapting to what worked for his team at that moment due to injuries. So coaches need to do that. Um, This is the time of year where they can study the, uh, the players that they're going to make their roster. What are their strengths? and try to understand, you know, this is the optimal way to win games. Here's how we're going to tweak it a little bit to fit our particular team's strengths and weaknesses based upon personnel. All right, Warren, final question. And, and this to me is, is, is kind of the elephant in the room question that I don't think we've quite figured out yet as an NFL community because I completely agree with your pass on first down, more early down play action at a big personnel. It's much more efficient. But eventually there has to be some type of line of demarcation where teams are passing enough on early downs 
where defenses and defensive players will adjust and play action becomes less effective. Passing becomes less efficient because they're not quite as focused on stopping the run on first and 10. What do you think that line is? What's the run-pass split where you stop gaining efficiency, throwing on early downs because teams are more prepared for those throws on first and 10 and play action, and they're not quite as worried about you running the football? It's another good question, and uh, the answer is we aren't there yet, mm-hmm. so it's hard to say what <laughs> exactly, you know, when exactly we're going to get there because nobody has ever gotten to that point yet. Got it. Um, it's always it's it's still as more efficient to pass the ball on these early downs. Um, the most efficient time to run the football, generally speaking, short yardage and inside the red zone. Um, now. You certainly have a running back like Saquon that in your team's particular uh, position, you're going to want to balance his usage in there, especially with some of the lack of great dominant wide receivers that you have. Um, That being said, you know, the play action game certainly is still effective. Uh, What we have learned from statistics and analytics is you do not have to set up the pass with the run. Um, Play action will work just as well in the first quarter as it will late in games or middle of the game. Um, You don't have to establish the run in order to get play action to work. Mm -hmm. Um, As long as you are calling run plays at at some minimal level, play action is going to get those linebackers to bite um, or hesitate. And that's all you need. That's the sole purpose of it. Hesitation or movement forward. Is, is the only thing that you need those guys to do. And we see with the player tracking data that whether it's the first play of the game, the 10th play of the game, the 30th play of the game, linebackers inherently get caught with play action because it's been ingrained in their mind through high school and college and then into the NFL. Very difficult to break that when they see the quarterback, you know, sticking the ball into the belly of the running back. Um, so I don't, the answer is. We're not there yet. <laughs> we may get there, but I would actually I would be surprised if we ever got to the point uh, where teams are passing so much on early downs that a run play becomes more efficient. It's it's unfortunate for defenses um, that the rule changes have occurred such that it just makes it so much more efficient to pass the football. But that's where we are. Um, the way that the rules are set up, the construct that we're working with. It's just more efficient to pass, and teams need to um, balance to an extent. Um, I'm not suggesting passing every single first and second down play out there, uh, but balance it and you know f- find the mix that will work best for your particular offense. As much as my partner here, Paul Dettino, might not like it, we're not in the 70s and 80s anymore when guys are leading the league with 56% completion percentage. It's just, it's just not the way the league is anymore, Warren. You're 100% right. And it's criminal. <laughs> it's flat-out criminal. Warren, great conversation. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope our uh, listeners and viewers did as well. One more time, tell the folks out there where they can find your work. Yeah, thank you very much. I've loved talking to you guys. You can find it on sharpfootballanalysis.com if you want to buy the PDF copy of the book or you can search for it on Amazon. Great stuff, Warren. Thanks so much. It begins. Enjoy about a couple weeks before we can start analyzing some preseason football. All right, bud? Absolutely. All right, Warren. Be good. Take it easy. Thank you. Warren Sharp does an excellent, excellent job. Again, guys, you look at his book. It is detailed, as you can imagine. It's about 300 pages, if I'm not mistaken, between 250 it's, and 300. It's big. And it gives you a lot. It gives you some fantasy stuff. If, if you're involved in other things, you might have some fun on the side with football over the course of the season. It gives you a little bit of everything. So mm-hmm. uh, excellent, excellent reading. Warren, kind enough to join us for the second straight year. Things you might want to have fun with on the side. Very well put, yeah. I'm not quite sure what you mean, Paul. <laughs> 201 oh. uh, We will take your calls for the final 25 minutes of the show. So, uh, again, thank you for being with us on Big Blue Kickoff. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Warren. But now your calls the rest of the way. Again, 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. And, of course, uh, it's all presented by Coors Light. All right, Paul, we have our first rookie practice tomorrow, which isn't going to be a hardcore out-and-out practice. It's, I'm not going to say glorified walkthrough, but it's probably not going to be even close to what we see you know, over the weekend when the full roster gets here. Uh, the veterans arrive on Wednesday. Rookies arrive today. Mm-hmm. They will be arriving shortly, I believe. And then on fr- Thursday, we have our first full-blown practice. And Correct. 
I believe our first padded practice is not until Sunday, or is it even next Tuesday, our first padded practice? Have they announced that yet or not yet? I don't think it was officially announced, and my take on it is I'm here every day. Yeah, I know you are. I'm just trying to give the fans an idea of of exactly what the deal is. I don't think it's been announced. If if you do have tickets to practice, by the way, go to Giants.com. I understand the tickets are sold out, Dave. That's correct, right? Every day, practice. Yes, that's correct. So make sure you go uh, to Giants.com, check the schedule. Uh, All the practices the first week or so are earlier in the day, but then we get to some afternoon practices later in camp. So make sure you just check out the timing on that. If you do have tickets and you do plan on attending training camp, uh, you go to Giants.com for all the details. So, Paul. John, hold on a second, though. I just want to make sure, and let me break through the wall again with Dave here. Dave, it was always my understanding, and I, I, I said this two weeks ago on the show, and if I'm wrong, I want to make sure I get it out there now. Uh, there are a lot of times where people have training camp tickets and they wind up not being able to make it. And so there are a number of walk-up people who stu- still have an opportunity to make it. So yes. don't think that just because you don't have training camp tickets, you can't get in. Right. But, there, we, but we do want to stress that there is no guarantee if correct. you want to walk up that you're getting in. So doesn't that, mean you're you locked out, very careful with but that. Right. you're basically uh, mm-hmm. at your own risk. Let's Correct. put it that way. Standing room only. You know how it goes. Right. Standing room only. Like right. I said, used mm-hmm. to talk about in the 70s, mm-hmm. the old days. But, uh, I mean, I just want to make that clear because I know that a lot of people, I remember when I was a kid and, and I used to want to want to come watch, and you hear sold out and you think, well, that's it. I have no chance to go. And then you cry and you get upset and you throw a tantrum with your parents. That may not be the case. You may still be able to somehow get in. So, just want to put that out there. Absolutely. And, and again, all the information you need is on Giants.com. Make sure you go check it out and Phones are open, folks. I see a couple ringing right now at 201-939-4513. Get in. We'll talk some Giants football. All right, Paul. Training camp, first practice on Thursday, like I mentioned. Yes. What's the first thing you're going to be putting your eyes on? Well, to be honest with you, John, um, because the first practice is very light, as you said, the fully padded ones aren't going to be for a few days in. I'm generally just going to be looking at guys to make sure that they're in shape and in condition, which the coach and the training staff obviously are going to be looking at extremely carefully because when guys come back and they're not where they're supposed to be physically, it does give you cause for concern. This Giants team is is trying to make the next jump to being a playoff contender again, if possible, this season, which means everybody on this roster, if you're going to be on that 53 you got to be committed. you got to be all in. you got to come ready to go first day of training camp that you're going to be chopping wood and, and you are going to do everything you possibly can. Because if this team doesn't get max out effort from all 53 on those guys who they finally decide who are going to be on the roster, they're not going to make the next jump. They're just not. The team is not good enough that they can have anybody perform at less than peak efficiency. What competitions are you keeping an eye on? Whether it's for roster spots, starting spots, you can take that word competition and twist that however you want to give me an answer. I will say in the first few practices before anybody starts to hit, I will be looking at the receivers and probably the safeties. Because, re- look. The- because there's very little that you can see when there's no no hitting. And the contact rules are different. So you, they can do more than OTAs and, and minicamp and stuff like that. But Not until, much. The, until the pads come on, it's almost a continuation of that. And they're going to try to rebuild build these guys back up over the course of the first few days of practice. Until you get to that first pad of practice and you have their first day off, which I I'll believe is what. next Monday. Yeah, you, you told me I could change the question a bit. Yeah. Let me change the question Shift just alter. a bit. Take it. Can I tell you the guy that I'm really, really, really looking on, the guy that I spoke of during rookie minicamp and I said he is my undrafted rookie free agent dark horse to make the team, C.J. Conrad. I am staring at this guy with my binoculars, okay? I absolutely think he is a stud in waiting. He's going. I really believe he's going to make the 53, and I cannot wait to see this guy get on the field. I know he's a tight end, which means at best he'll be third on the depth chart. You know that Ellison and Ingram are going to be one and two or two and one. But I think that C.J. Conrad is a pro football player. And I, I just, I'm really, really going to keep my eye on this guy. 
All right, let's get to the calls at 201-939-4513. And who better to start off the first week of training camp than our buddy Charlie in Portland, Maine. Charlie, how are you? How was your weekend? Hey, it was hot, but it was good. <laughs> was it we, was, was it just as hot up there in Maine as it was down here, almost hitting 100? No, it was, it was more like 90, so it wasn't as bad. Just two days. So, okay. you know, that's basically our hot weather for the summer, pretty much. <laughs> Well, you know, Charlie, it's got to be hot when you can cook the lobster on your front porch. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't even make it to the front porch. <laughs> hey, um, yeah, I think, um, I don't know, I, I just think, I think another guy, an undrafted free agent that you should watch for that I think is going to make the 53 is O'Hagan. I think the center, um, this this dude is, is a wrestler. He uh, had incredible numbers in college. He was ranked, I think, the top center in the nation, or at least if he wasn't the top, he was next. So I, I think I, I think if uh, if Jalapio wins it, I think uh, Pulley's gone. Well, and I was gonna, I, I was going to uh, say, Charlie, gonna... the only way O'Hagan makes it is if they end up moving either Jalapio or Pulley. Right. Yeah, that's what. Oh, I, that's what I think they're going right. to do. To mm-hmm. tell you the truth, I think that's going to happen. And, and Charlie, then... don't forget Evan Brown. They had him last year on the team. He didn't go practice squad. He actually snuck onto the fifty-three, and they really like his potential. Don't don't count him out of, of this fight. I mean, he he's going to scrap, and maybe there's room on the practice squad for for the loser of, of the battle between the two young centers. But yeah, but I would true. be surprised if both of those guys are jettisoned. I really would. Yeah, and or the other, one of them, the other place that. Is really interesting as wide receiver. Um, you know, our third wide receiver. I don't think he's on the team right now. To tell you the truth, uh, I know you you got potential with Coleman. You, you know, got Lattimore, but I, I I just don't think the guy that we need for our third wide receiver is on the team. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we pick up a veteran, somebody who's cut, who's had production, mm. and maybe has a, some speed. You know, somebody like a Patterson that, you know, he's, you know, he's not the greatest wide receiver, but he's a guy that can take the top off the defense and he can do a bunch of different things. And I, I just don't think we've got that guy yet. Who's Patterson? Corderell Patterson. Oh, Corderell Patterson. Okay. Yeah, well, Cordero, Cordero, okay. He's more of a yeah, running back now than a receiver, the way the Patriots use him. Charlie, you know, if we're going to go by your assumption, then we're also going to have to believe that Coleman – is not going to step up as they hope. And we're going to have to assume that Darius Slayton, who came on very strong at the end of the rookie camp. And Cody Latimer, by the way. It, it, yeah, we're going to have to assume that those guys don't step up. And, and you know, to be perfectly frank with you, I think it's probably better for the Giants if those guys do step up than them having to go outside. Would you not agree, John? Sure. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I agree, but I just don't know if they're gonna they're gonna step up. That's the thing. Hey, and the other thing is, hey, I hope Daniel Jones doesn't sign. Then the controversy will be over with, and we won't have to deal with it. <laughs> and, and Eli's gonna be our quarterback. So that would be wonderful for me. Uh, <laughs> Charlie, I, I can always count on you for the unique perspective on things like that. I appreciate <laughs> it, man. Hey, by the way, are you gonna come down to camp at one point this year or no? I'm not going to come down to camp, but I uh, think I'm coming. I'm coming to the Washington game. Oh, really? Coming to the yeah, Washington because, game? Eh? Yeah, Len offered me a ticket, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at flights right now, so it's looking good. So I think that's the game I'm going to okay. be coming to. Time out, Charlie. What section are you guys going to be in? We need to warn those fans. <laughs> I think uh, uh, Len said 133. That's their good seat. More so importantly, I, I want to send one of our audio guys to just record that three and a half hours of conversation. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, he said it's the Verizon entrance. Where are okay. you guys when you set up your stage? We are, we, we, are, we are at the Verizon gate. But here's the thing. Oh, and and, 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 and no, here's the problem, though. Len likes to get into his seat so early to see well, warm-ups. That he's he doesn't like to come by and say hello to us on game days. No, but he if, ignores us. If you are in that building, Charlie, and you don't come to that pregame radio stage, I'm going to send oh, Howard Cross to find you and pummel you. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I might send no, him I, anyway. You definitely will. You you probably will be trying to get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Thank you, Charlie. <laughs>
Okay, guys. All right, look forward to it. See you then. Be good. 201-939-4513. It's all presented by Coors Light. Uh, Let's go to Scott, New Mexico. He's up next. Scotty Do, what's up? Hey, guys. How are you doing today? What's going on? Hi. Uh, Question for I was very interested in the conversation with Warren, but I wanted to know if analytics can be uh, enhanced or affected by whether a quarterback can throw in the wind, whether he plays, plays in a dome stadium, does weather impact analytics? I was just curious if they measure that metric uh, well, in yeah. regards to the season. Yeah, Scott, I think that, that was kind of related to the question that I posed where you look at a lot of these league-wide trends and league-wide statistics, but then how do you take those and adjust them to your specific matchup and situation? So, right. for example, if you're going into a game, and I think this is kind of goes into that bag where you're you know playing in a real bad weather situation where throwing the ball is going to be really, really tough, you're probably not going to want to pass it as much because that's going to hurt the efficiency of your passing game and it makes less sense to throw the ball. So, yeah, when that's something you, the teams would have to do after they get their overall league-wide analytical data. They would then have to apply it to their specific personnel and their specific matchup in a specific place in specific weather, which is why it's not as simple sometimes as the overall oh, team should always go for it in fourth down now in these specific situations is not necessarily universal across all the teams, across all the venues, across all weather conditions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'll go further, Scott. Analytics cannot measure heart, soul, injuries, leadership, and culture. Okay? And those factors have a dramatic impact on your won and loss record. And that's why, you know, I look at analytics as the oregano and not the pizza. Okay, but can game planning, in other words, uh, if you know a quarterback, for example, who plays in a dome stadium like Drew Brees, yeah. may not have the arm strength now that he had, say, 10 years ago, and he's playing, uh, obviously, in Green Bay or mm-hmm. St. Louis or someplace where, you know, weather is going to be impacted, uh, d- does a team then look at the analytics of what he does in in the dome stadium and then take that out of the equation and then, game plan a whole different way for him. Uh, I'm, I'm just using one example, obviously. Scott, in the world. No, Scott, like at, Scott absolutely. It's, teams it, track all that stuff. It's a great example, and if you remember, I was very much, I'm not a big Dak Prescott fan anyway, but I had done the research, and he had only played like three bad weather climate games in his entire college career. Right. And then when they came here to play at MetLife Stadium on a very cold, nasty, miserable primetime game, and the forecast was for that, and I got on this show all week, and I said, I guarantee it, Dak Prescott's not going to have a good game, and he didn't. Which game was that, Paul? It was about a couple of years ago when Dallas came into the Meadowlands. It was a primetime game. Okay, so I, I thought you were thinking about the final game of last year. No, no, yeah, no. Because, no. because, I, th- because I thought he played pretty well in that game, which is which, no, which is what No, no, it, it was a okay. couple years ago. I got you. And, and it was because, I guess, it was in um, – um, uh, precipitation weather. Either uh, what I had done is I went back to his college career. I remember, you and did I this. checked yep. mm-hmm. rain, snow, or sub twenty degrees. And he only had like three samples of that in his college career. Wow. And all three right. games he performed poorly. There's not a lot of cold weather down there in the SEC. No, no. <laughs> so you know, I I certainly I, again that's an intangible. And you're right, Scott. I don't know the that the analytics people necessarily you know, compute that stuff in all of their computer models. I don't know that they do or they don't. I can't answer for that. But okay. what I what I can do is say that if I'm a scout or I'm a coach and I'm playing an opponent that week, you're damn straight I'm checking into it. Okay, my last question, I'll take it off the air. Uh, Dan Orlovsky a while back had said it's rare when good players become great players in the NFL, and they were talking specifically about quarterbacks. In the in what you've seen so far with Daniel Jones, I would venture to say he was a good quarterback in college. But yep. does he have the attributes, you think, or what have you seen in the limited time you've seen him? And obviously preseason will we'll bear that out. Uh, do you see the characteristics that could potentially make him a good, a great quarterback? And I'll take your answers off the air, guys. It's a, it's a good question, and, and I appreciate this call, uh, call, Scott. Thanks a lot. And I think this was the worry I had for him coming out. Um, I, I was fairly confident. And I think I found that game you were talking about, but I'll get to it in a second. Okay. Um, I was fairly confident that he had a pretty high floor based on his what you saw in college. The problem in college for him, Paul, is that 
His numbers were very, very deflated, and this made him difficult to scout in some ways. His numbers, efficiency, production were deflated by the talent around him. Mm-hmm. Drop passes, things like that. And and look, we've talked about that a million times. But my question, I think both of us had this question, was that what was his upside and ceiling as a quarterback? Could he develop into a top five, top six, top eight NFL quarterback? That was the question we asked. Now, once he got here and I saw him in person, I honestly feel better about it than I did before. The arm strength is good enough. He's certainly athletic enough. He has the size and the build. His mental approach and you know things of that nature, we thought that was good coming in, and, and, and it's only been proven. So I feel better, Scott, about his ability to become that upper echelon quarterback today than he, I did on March 31st, for example. I totally concur with John. Even though there are only limited boxes in front of us to this point. Yeah, and by the way, Paul and I are taking a lot out of spring practice here, making these decisions. Absolutely. Limited boxes. Mm -hmm. He's checked all of them. They're limited, but he's checked all of them. There are many more boxes that still need to be determined. And, And that is what ultimately will decide whether or not he is a top level quarterback. Until those boxes are filled either with an X or a check mark. We won't know. I will say this, though, John. Of all the rookie quarterbacks that I have ever seen at Giants camp going into their first training camp, and now what is my 37th straight season, he is further along than any of them. Better than Eli. Better than Eli was going into his first regular training camp. He's certainly the best one I've seen. Now, that's not... Saying a whole lot, I wasn't here when Eli was a rookie. My first year was 2007. So of the, you know, Rhett Bomar, Ryan Nassib, Davis, Webb well, and, and group. And that's the he, asterisk. He, now, because this is what I say. He, he looks different than those guys. So you can just tell, look at him. That yes. guy looks different. Eli's the only top-notch pick, right. even over the 37 years. Think about that. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the, the mm-hmm. only other guy who was high was Jeff Hostetler. Well, he Dave, was a three. Dave Brown. Yeah, I try to forget about that one because he was a supplemental but he, he, but let me put it this way. Did Daniel Jones look better in spring practice than David than Dave Brown looked in training camp his rookie year? Yes. Okay. Yes. And without question looked better than Jeff Hostetler. And Haas was a third rounder. Okay. Brown those to be fair, because all the other guys were lower than third round picks who they've taken, maybe it's only fair enough to compare him to Brown and Haas. Maybe those are the only two guys we Might should be. compare him to. And by the way... And I, he certainly looked better than both of them. And I should point out, too, that we'll know a lot more about how far along he is and what his ceiling is and all that sort of stuff when he starts playing in games. Again, that changes everything. The page of unfilled Correct. boxes. We just don't yep. know. Absolutely. 201-939-4513. is all presented by Coors Light. Len in Columbia, Maryland. Hello, Len. How you doing? We're doing great, Len. What's up? What do you say? Yeah, well, listen. Hey, John, the first thing I wanted to mention was you said uh, that first Monday in um, of, of training camp was a, a day off. Did you say that? I think I, it I, is. I, there, there is one season ticket holder. Let me say, hold on. Uh, there is one practice reserved for season ticket hold holders. Hold on, let but, me. Yeah, hold on, let me. Let, let me just make sure because they cannot practice more than four days in a row. That's a okay. rule. Yes. So they're either going to be off Sunday or Monday because they're going to practice Thursday, well, Friday, Saturday. So they're well, going to be off either Sunday or Monday. Well, I had to check which day. Yeah, yeah. They're 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 off Monday, John. Okay. And they're off Monday. Gotcha. If that's the rule, they're off Monday. Yep. Because there is a sun there is a Sunday practice. Yep. So yeah, Monday but, they're off then. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So it must be the second Monday for season ticket holders. Yes, must be. For, must be. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, hey, it's just starting to get exciting. Geez, we're getting close. Uh, starting to take a quick, you know, can't can't wait for camp to start, season to start. Um, I, I just miss those games. I mean, I want to see Giants football, and it's it's coming up, it's moving along. Um, you know, I look I look at the roster, and I, I just you know as excited I am to see games. I I, I just I, I keep thinking we're you know we're in a transition year. You know, we're we're closer to the bottom than we are to the top. That's probably true in the division, and it's probably true across the league, too. Um, the way to put that in different terms, I, I think we'll be drafting in the top 15 again. Hey, look, Len, 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 honestly, as I look at it, the team picked six in the draft last year. They were 5-11. and 11. To say they're closer to the top than the bottom, I think, would be extremely, extremely optimistic. Right. They, have to, they, right. have, they have to prove that they've improved. 
You yeah. know what oh, I mean? Yeah, 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 for sure. The question is how much, you know, how much closer are we? How much did other teams improve, too? Of course, I mean, of course. Not, they're not sitting mm-hmm. still. They were drafting just like we were. 100%. And signing free agents just like we were. So yep. these other teams got better, too. But Absolutely. Yeah, I think we made some strides. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, I think we're going to be more competitive. And I just hope we get off to a good start. And we're not, you know, we're not going into New England at 1-4. and four. You know, we're, no, we're going in there can't. to make that Thursday night game a good one. Len, the bottom line uh, is that first four games this year, at minimum, you have to be two and two, and I would prefer three and one because the schedule gets real tough real quick. Oh, it sure does. It sure does. But I think by then, uh, you know, if, if we can stay healthy, you know, the old thing, if we, if we can stay healthy, yeah, you know, particularly our top 28, 30 players, I keep talking about that group. If we can keep them relatively healthy, you know, not get wiped out and have to be playing our third center or our fourth tight end, um, I, I think we're going to be competitive in every game that we, you know, that we play. So I think we have made strides. The question is how much. And you know, Paul, I, I keep thinking back to, um, I, I keep thinking back to 1979. George Young comes in, he hires Ray Perkins. Mm-hmm. They, they draft three guys, and by that third year, you know, we're, we're hanging in there in the middle of the season. We go to Philly. Mm-hmm. We win a just absolutely huge game, maybe one of the biggest regular season games in franchise history. We beat the Eagles. It may have been the week before Thanksgiving, but I'll tell you, even a bigger, an even just catapulted land, us into land, that playoff, Paul. That eighty-one season, was, the biggest one was the overtime win in Atlanta in the pouring rain when Joe Danello hit that field goal. Yeah, yeah, big one, big one. Huge, yeah, no huge. Question. But I keep, I keep looking at that Philly game. They were coming off a Super Bowl. Understood. Feeling pretty confident. You know, Jaworski, Harold Carmichael, that mm-hmm. group. And we went down there, and, and, and we beat them in Philly. And uh, it turned things around. And I keep thinking, you know, that's, that's, that's what I'm looking for. You know, we get a little better, we get to that third year, and we make that jump in the third year, and we, and we start a run in the playoffs. Hey, listen, you had a question early in the, um, in the show about what are you going to be looking for at, at camp. Yeah. Um, you know, the how, the when, and the why of the transition at quarterback is probably going to turn out to be the most widely discussed and overanalyzed and debated personnel change in the history of the NFL. Well, then, so when, then I, real- when I get to training camp, the first thing I'm looking at, you know, I'm just a fan. I'm mm-hmm. a, you, you guys are more experts than I am. I'm just a fan, but that, that's where my eyes are going. I'll mm-hmm. bring my binoculars with me, and that's what I'm zeroing in on. Got it. All right, Len, we got to run, Bow. Okay, buddy. Hey, I appreciate thanks for it. taking a call. Hey, by the Go way, Giants. thank you. Go I appreciate Giants. it. Go Giants. Thank you for the call. And by the way, if I was a fan, I'd be watching Daniel Jones, too. Now, me and Paul have watched him throw the ball for – you know, ten practice. Well, I've watched him for ten practices. Paul's watched him for yeah. about five or six. Mm-hmm. Or I've watched him for about fifteen. Um, we've seen a lot of that, so that's why that wasn't our answer. But if I was a fan showing up and I haven't seen Daniel Jones up close and personal, sure. that'd be the first thing I watch too. But Len is right that that transition is going to be overanalyzed and overdone throughout the year. There's no question. I would be. Beyond and look, I've been wrong before, as you guys well know. I will be beyond shocked if at any point during August anyone has a realistic thought that Daniel Jones is a starting quarterback opening day. And again, not even that Shermer says it, that someone has a realistic thought that that, that could happen. I just don't I don't see it. I don't see it. What? I agree with you, John, but you know somebody out there wants to get their clicks, and they'll write it anyway. I know. All right, final call of the show. We're going to go a little past one. So I'm going to ask Coach Marvin, uh, get to your most important point and get to it first. Coach, good to talk to you. How are you, buddy? Hey, Coach. I'm all right. How you doing, John? Doing great. Um, The the one thing I'm going to look for when I go up to the camp, I'll be up there July 30th is when I'll be there. Great. So hopefully hopefully I get to meet you guys. For sure. Um, but what I'm looking at is three guys, is Baker, Love, and Bill. Um, I'd like to see those guys win those jobs, and I think that would be very important to have those three guys be able to start. I would like to see that. I'm not sure if they will but or all three would, but I would like to see all three of those guys in the secondary start because sometimes when you ha- in the history of the game, 
Sometimes some teams had some great defensive backs when they all came in together. Yeah, Coach, I'm not I'm not sure you want one of them to start over Janoris Jenkins, so I I think you hope two out no, of the three no. start. <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in a nickel package, all three yeah. of them could play um, with Jenkins. And, well, Love would uh, have to be with, at safety uh, then. Right. Um, with uh, Love playing um, the safety, hope maybe Bill, maybe it's the corn uh, slot. And then you have Baker on the outside. Either way they do it, I got that's you. what I'm talking about. In the nickel, I would like to see them. And then you'll be able to work the Jenkins issue maybe next year, whatever they're going to do. You know Get what? Get them experience together. Quickly, Coach so. Marvin, to respond to that, again, I think we're going to wind up seeing a lot more sub package out of the Giants this year. I wouldn't be surprised if you not only see six. I wouldn't be surprised if sometimes you'll see seven defensive backs. And you'd see Peppers as that fake linebacker Absolutely. slash DB. Yeah, I don't think as that's, the money backer. I, I don't think that's out of the question. Okay, I'm and so you. you may see all three of those guys on the field in a different type of defense, not your conventional style. I would also add one other thing. Those three guys, as John and I both have told you guys many times on this show before since they were taken in the draft, their specialty is physicality. So, honestly, unless you're at a full pads practice out here during training camp, you won't be able to appreciate all the stuff they bring to the table. It's true. Right, right, right. So, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm, I'm looking for. I mean, I can, and I'll be able to handle this year, be able to handle the mistakes they make as long as they're learning from those mistakes. Um, because I, I, I think they do need the plan time to, to really learn what's going on. And uh, my last part was uh, they were talking about Daniel Jones. You guys, I, I don't know how much film you guys watched of him. Did you watch a lot? Oh yes, my eyes bled, Coach. Uh, no, right. Coach, that's, Coach. That's literally, I watched. I watched every snap he took as a junior at Duke. Every single one. I didn't watch as much okay. as Gettleman did. <laughs> I don't think okay. you did either. Uh, so when you, when I you did saw not. him, when you saw him, my concern, the only thing is with young guys is the process of uh, processing the play itself. So is he throwing the ball in the right place? Is he making drastic mistakes consistently? So I'm wondering, even though the ball got dropped, was that the right throw that he was making? And I don't know if you saw that or you tried to determine that. Yeah, Coach, you, you, no, Coach you make a good point. And the one thing that did worry me a little bit watching him, uh, even just as a junior, and this is one of the points that we made before the draft, so it's not like we're just talking about it now. Mm-hmm. When he, when things didn't go right and the play didn't go exactly how it was supposed to go and maybe he was holding the ball a little bit longer and pass rush got mm-hmm. to him, there were some plays where he made a couple decisions. You know, by the way, the same way Eli's done that over the past 15 years from time to time too where he feels his pressure and you're just like, maybe that, maybe that wasn't the best idea, dude. <laughs> it, 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 it's kind of a human trait across the board, isn't it, though? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, we're human. We're not robots. Those things are going to happen. I, I, I would add this point to, to what you're saying, Coach, uh, and, and that is this. And we got to run, Coach. Thanks a lot for the call. We appreciate we it. We could take educated guesses as to whether or not he made the right decision because, you know, we can't always understand what it is that the coach told him to do or what the progression was. But here's what I will say. There is no doubt that he did not have – a lot of confidence in his offensive line, no matter how many things he said about them. Oh, yeah, they were good. They did fine. He was very nice, much like Eli will never throw anybody under the bus. His offensive line was not very good well, dude, last he, year. He, he came on the Giants Huddle podcast with me and said he played with great wide receivers at Duke. Right, and they had, what, 36 drop passes last year? Led they the led, nation. Led the nation, mm-hmm. okay? So, so he's one of those guys who will cover up for everybody else. Which is, by the way, what you want him to do. That of is course a good you do. Thing. Mm-hmm. But we know that his, his receiving core was not very accomplished, and we know that his offensive line gave him a lot of cause for concern. And when you put those two things together, you can somewhat excuse some poor decision-making. Well, you can, yes, correct. You can understand why. I, 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 I hate to excuse stuff like that, but I totally understand where you're coming from, which is why I think it's important to see him in an NFL game with better players around him and then see how he does. You know, the jury's out, folks. I mean, the the jury's out on all these guys. You know, we, we got to see. We're just going based on what we saw. And all we've seen is spring practice, which in the large scheme of things is diddly, you know what? It's nothing. So we're just going off what we've seen, but there is a heck of a lot more we need to see. And I know none of our minds are made up. You know what spring practice is? It's kind of like 
the dinner rolls that they give you before they start serving the meal. Some of those dinner rolls are tasty. They are. And we've seen some tasty stuff out there. That's true. But, but it's you, nothing more than a tease at this point. Many times you've gotten a great dinner roll, and then they bring the entree out, and oh, boy. We need to Other see. times the entree is delicious. We need to we see. We need to see. Paul, good stuff, buddy. Yes, John. Uh, you're good tomorrow. You're yes, going to host with Lance, I believe, as long as Lance can make it in. I'm waiting to hear back from him okay. on that. Okay. And um, then I will be back with you on Wednesday with Lance. And then starting next week, folks, BBK is going to move in, move to 1 o'clock. Uh, for at least a week and change. Um, that's going to start this Thursday. The show's going to move to one to accommodate practice and media availability. Mm-hmm. It's going to stay there for at least a week, maybe more. But then practice starts like changing times and schedules change. So <laughs> Coach Schirmer does not make my scheduling life easy with this. I will do no. my best, and we will keep you updated <laughs> on when BBK is going to be. And, of course, you can always find it on uh, all your favorite podcast platforms, and it will be archived on, on Giants.com as well. Go to the New York Giants audio podcast, and all the Big Blue uh, kickoff episodes are in there. For Paul Dottino, I'm John Schmuck. We'll see you tomorrow at noon on Giants.com. Adios.